if you want. That's fine. Okay. Or you can stand. Oh, Lord. Uh, right now, as we look into another uh, scene in your word, I do pray that you would uh, be magnified in our hearts, that we would behold you, Jesus, in your glory in a way that brings transformation inside of us. Ignite in us this morning a fresh zeal for Jesus. Ignite, ignite in us a, a alivened hunger for more of you. Set our minds and our souls aflame with the lessons that are in this story that bring life and hope to our weary and tired and confused souls. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak to each one of us um, very specifically and clearly this morning, God. I pray you'd speak to us corporately, but I pray to you to speak to us individually that the very thing that we need to hear this morning, our hearts will be wide open to hear and that you'd whisper it to us and we'd receive it and we'd rejoice in your speaking to us and we'd leave here more aware that you reign and rule over our lives and that you are alive and working in our world and in our hearts. And so do that. Come, Spirit, do your work in us. That's why we're here. We're here to hear from you. And so speak to us right now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in a minute, Renee is going to read. If you want to turn your Bibles to Genesis 30, Last week, we did the very end of chapter 29, and we talked about Leah. And we talked about how God is at work in Leah's world. And God was at work in Leah's world as a way of God working in Leah's heart. He wanted to work in her heart, so instead of her worshiping or, or loving or too much, putting too much value in the things that God gave her, she would turn them around to praise. She'd praise him for them, and that was the work that God wanted to do. Well, this morning, we continue in our story... Um, what we didn't finish last week, which was chapter 30, verses 1 to 24. So Renee's going to come. She's going to read those verses to us this morning. And then we're going to jump right in and see what God has for us from Genesis 30, beginning in verse 1. All right, Genesis 30, verses 1 through 24. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children... She envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant, Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. 
In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulon. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Perfect. Thank you. I feel like the title of this sermon should just be One Big Hot Family Mess. In fact, my, that's my first point this morning. <laughs> God's work in the family's big hot mess. Because that's really what's going on. This is a mess. A me- You think your relatives are, are whacked out? This is a mess. I mean, just this little section, Jacob is going to gain two more wives... And not out of love, because they're pawned off to him so that these other ladies can have babies on their behalf or for them. And by the end of the chapter, there'll be 11 sons and one daughter being born. And Leah will win the baby wars with a score of 8-3 to over Rachel. (laughs) But I want to point out some key words that make it easy to see that this is a hot mess. These may be some words you want to circle in your Bibles. The first is in verse 1. Look what it says. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She envied her. So we've got envy. Part of the hot family mess is envy. And then in verse 2, it says, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel because he, she was blaming him for not being able to have kids. So we got anger. So we've got envy and we've got anger. And then in verse 8, we hear how Rachel describes her relationship with her sister. She says, it's with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister. It literally means I have wrestled or I have twisted things around with my sister. There's a a, a wrestling, an angst between the two of them. So we've got envy, anger, mighty wrestlings. And then it's kind of ironic that in verse 13, Leah's like, but I'm happy. But I'm happy. I mean, that's almost like, yeah, you shouldn't be. And no one should be calling you happy in light of this mess that your family is in. And yet she's almost kind of this gloating, like, well, I'm happy. The people are calling me happy, so I guess everything's okay. Even though their family is marked with envy, anger, and mighty wrestlings. I mean, this is sibling rivalry at its best. Marital conflict gone super wrong. Perhaps this describes your family a little bit. Or maybe it describes your family at times. (laughs) Spouses disagreeing and wanting to be right. Never been there. Siblings wanting each other, wanting what each other has. 
That's never happened, kids. Fighting, conflict, conflict, anger, wrestling for attention, one family member always wanting to be right and coming out on top. I mean, perhaps at times your family isn't so far from their family. When you get to the issues of the heart, wrestlings and conflict and anger and wanting to be right, and perhaps these conflicts lead you to doing some regrettable things and maybe even doing some irrational things. But hopefully none of them quite as bad as what we see going on here in this chapter. This chapter, things seem to escalate further and further as you go through it until you even hit this point with this whole mandrake scandal. This is a fun story. It's up with these mandrakes. Evidently, Reuben, her 10-year-old, 8, 10-year-old son, is outside. He finds these mandrakes. He brings them back to Leah. And Rachel sees them. And she immediately decides, I want them. I need them. I will get them somehow from her. And so we read about this. Look at, look at verse 14 with me. It says, In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? That just stopped right there. What are you talking about? Aren't you the one who stole him? So obviously something's going on here where she's owned Jacob now for some season of time where, where she has said, no, Leah, you can't have him at all anymore. And so she's, she's taking back what was hers from the beginning, but Leah doesn't see it that way. She sees it as you've taken my husband from me. And now she's saying, then would you take away my son's mandrakes too? As if taking a husband and taking a mandrake are on equal playing grounds. <laughs> think their, their priorities are a little bit mixed up. So then Rachel says, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So that's the goal. I'm going to swap out. I'm going to give you Jacob if you give me your mandrakes. So what's up with the mandrakes? What's up with them? Well, it's said or thought, at least as you read this story, that mandrakes have something to do with productive, for, for being fertile, for having kids. Or it's an aphrodisiac of some kind. We only read about it one more time, and that's in the Song of Solomon. It says this in the Song of Solomon, chapter 7. The mandrakes, this is the bride talking to her groom, says the mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. So there's something about the smell, the fragrance, of a mandrake that is associated here with sexual desires. Somehow those are linked together in some way. And so married couples, as you leave today, you will all receive two mandrakes. <laughs> They're in baskets in the back. And we'll see if it works. Some have said that they, they still have mandrakes, may apples they call them, and that if you... Um, if, you, if you eat some, and I don't know what the fragrance thing is, but evidently you can hallucinate. So if you take a small enough amount, you'll get a buzz. Too much, you'll die. So there's this happy meeting. So when you take them this morning, don't <laughs> overdo it. So I don't know whether the fragrance that they burned, it was like an essential oil, and it like made them all happy. I don't know. It was their day marijuana maybe. I don't, I don't know. But something's going on there to the point where it becomes a really big deal to Rachel that she gets a hold of these mandrakes. And as a result, in verse 16, I guess 
Rachel wins, and she gets the deal. And so Jacob comes home, it says in verse 16, and he meets Rachel, who says, it says, when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So now the dude's a gigolo. He's been hired out to sleep with somebody else by one of his wives. Like a piece of property. He is now under legal obligation to sleep with Leah. I mean, this is a family mess to the third degree. And as you move forward in the drama, things do keep getting messier and messier. I mean, in hopes of getting what she wants, Rachel just keeps making one poor decision after another. Perhaps you know people like that. They move from one crisis to the next. In response to one crisis, they do something that makes that crisis even worse. Or maybe you're like that. I've done the same thing. I have faced a crisis or really wanted to accomplish something, and a mess ensues. And then, in my attempts to try to fix the mess, I make a bigger mess. And that seems to be what's happening in this story. I doubt a week later, after this event, Rachel thought, that was a really good idea that I sold my husband for those mandrakes. I don't think she was applauding herself later on, going, that was a wise decision. Sure, I'm glad I did that one. I think she realized that all she did was make things worse. She added to the family mess. But I do think that God used the family mess to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. I think he did. Does this mandrake story remind you of another story in Jacob's life? What happened with Jacob? What did he do to Esau? What did he take? His birthright. For what? Soup. For soup. Only now Jacob is on the receiving end of the bad sales transaction. Right? I mean, you got to see this as, as a total reversal, right? Now all of a sudden, he's the one. Somebody's selling something so that they can get him. He's the one at the bad end of the deal. And I have to think that God is using this in Jacob's life once again to alert him to what he is doing, to his pattern of deceiving people, to his pattern of taking advantage of people, to his pattern of mistreating people in ways that God wouldn't want him to. So I think God puts him in this situation. God uses this family mess to help him see his sin. I mean, has God ever done that to us? We kind of opens our eyes in some way so that we see our sin differently because of an experience we have. Maybe it's when we're on the receiving end of something that's similar. And so out of love, I think God is setting him free again at another level by giving him this experience through the whole mandrake scandal. So this really is a, is a hot mess. And it seems like God, as we've gone our way through Genesis, and you guys know a lot about the rest of your Bible, that God loves to take sinful, confusing messes and turn them around to accomplish his purposes. He does it all over the place in Scripture, and I think he does the same thing in our lives. Uh, maybe to put it another way, God loves to redeem our sin. He loves to take our sin and use it to accomplish something. He turns it around. He turns evil around to make it good in some way. And this story is an example of that. Right through all this mess are going to come the 12 tribes of Israel, which, if you've read the rest of your Bible, it's a pretty big deal. Right? And through Judah, Jesus is going to be born. So he's using the mess to bring about his purposes. And what bigger mess 
is there in Scripture than the mess of Jesus' trial? I mean, talk about a sinful mess. Being falsely accused, a premeditated secret trial in the dark that's twisted with false witnesses in order to torture and murder the only sinless man that ever walked the earth. I mean, that is God taking something bad and making it great, right? Taking man's mess and turning it into something that is beautiful and wonderful for us as we accomplish and get the forgiveness of sins through a huge mess, a huge sinful mess. And so if God can use that mess, if God can use Jesus' trial and Calvary to bring about redemption, then God can use this family mess to continue to push his good works forward. And that's what he's on the move doing. So I would guess that some of you here this morning are walking through some painful, messy things. Maybe it's with your family. Maybe it's with your extended family. And although the outcome probably won't be a Messiah being born through your family, I still think God's at work. I think God's at work even in your family mess. I hope your mess, I would assume your mess, is nothing like this mess in Genesis, to this extreme. But your family mess might just be conflict. Maybe as a couple you have this conflict that just keeps happening over and over and you just can't seem to get over it. Or, or maybe it's a parenting situation. You're trying to figure out. You don't know how to handle it. And it's challenging. And it's a, it's a family mess, so to speak. Or maybe it involves your parents. Maybe your older parents. I don't know what the, what the mess is. And I don't know whether it's a big or a small mess. But either way, I think it's good for us to ask the question, what is God wanting to accomplish in my family mess? Do you believe that God is at work in your world? Do you believe that God is at work in your family mess? If you do, then the question seems to be, what is God doing in my world and in my heart through this family mess that I'm walking through? I think it's something to consider. I don't know about you, but I want to get the most I can for the benefit of my soul out of the messes that I walk through. I don't want to look back and have missed opportunities where God was trying to speak to me, but I was too busy being busy to not catch the things that God was saying. Well, this family mess not only worked in Jacob's heart, which I think it did, and produced the 12 tribes of Israel and eventually the birth of Jesus, but it also was a work in Rachel's heart and Rachel's world. And that's where I want to focus the rest of our time this morning is on God's work in Rachel's world. Because this same situation is going to produce something else in Rachel, maybe a little different than what it produced in Jacob, than what it produced in Leah. Isn't that funny how God works? He can put us all through a situation together, but he's going to teach each of us maybe something very different from that mess. And so here we see Rachel's world and God's work in Rachel's world. So look at verse 22 with me. It says, God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and he opened her womb. Jimmy, years they've been married at this point. Probably close to 20. So this is like their 20th wedding anniversary, and Rachel finally has her first baby. That's 20 years of watching Leah's eight sons and one daughter grow up. That's 20 years of birthday parties. That's 20 years of grief-filled infertility. 
while your husband's stealing sister is filled with joy over all these kids and having them all grow up right before her very eyes. I mean, she is experiencing serious pain, I'm sure. And so it makes me ask the question, why? Why make her wait 20 years? I mean, have any of us ever asked that question? Just do it today. (laughs) Why wait? What's up with the waiting? So why? Well, we've seen this before, and I have a couple of answers this morning that I think are relevant to us. But the big picture answer, I think, is this, and we've seen this before in Genesis. God has her wait, and he has her wait because God is going to do what God needs to do in Rachel's world so that Rachel will know God the way that God wants Rachel to know God. <laughs> now, that's a cumbersome sentence. But I think that's what's happening. God is going to do what God needs to do in her world so that she'll know him the way that he wants her to know him. That's why God's doing what he's doing. God's doing it for a purpose. It's like, I want you to know me a certain way, so I'm going to orchestrate events in your life so you'll encounter and know me that way. And I think that's what's happening here. But what I love about these verses, verses 22 to 24, is I see four things that God is doing in Rachel. Four things that God wants Rachel to know about God right here before her very eyes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it, and I want you to tell me, after I'm done reading the whole thing, what are the four things God is doing in Rachel? What are the four things that God is revealing about himself to Rachel through these circumstances? So let's read them. I'm going to read them. Four things God wants Rachel to know about himself. And let's see if we can figure out what they are. So verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. All right, so four things Those verses tell us about God, that Rachel learned about God through this experience. What's the first one? He remembers. He's a God who remembers. What's the second one? He listens. He's a God who listens. I mean, are those important things to you? (laughs) Important to me. What's the third thing? He opens her womb. He's the God who opened her womb. And what's the fourth thing? He takes away her reproach. So four things that Rachel learns about God because of the experience that she went through. And I want to do is take a minute. I want to talk about each one of these four that she learned through her experience about God. The first one is that God remembers. See, God is a forgetful God. And there's times where he just forgets you exist. And he doesn't know what to do. And then he's like, oh, oh, forgot about them. Not true. I'm lying. When it says God remembers, and it says other places in the Scripture, I think it says about Noah. God remembered Noah when he's floating around in the boat. It's not that he forgets. It means that God's about to do something for them. God's going to do something. He's going to act on their behalf. So in this moment, God remembers her, meaning God is going to act on her behalf. He's going to do some specific action for her. And so God had Rachel wait 20 years so she would know and experience God as a God who remembers her. And God knew that if she'd gotten pregnant on her honeymoon— She would not have known God as the God who remembers. She would never have thought, maybe God's never going to work on my behalf. 
But because of the waiting, she experienced God that way. See, if Rachel did not find herself in a situation where she needed God to work on her behalf, then she would never would have known him as the God who remembers. So if you need God to work on your behalf this morning, I believe God is setting you up for an opportunity to learn to know him as the God who remembers, that he sees you, that he wants to work on your behalf. These are the kind of exercises I think that are faith-building. I bet we could go around the room and many of you could tell us a time when God remembered you. Where out of the blue, God came in and did something that you needed him to do, that if he didn't do it, trouble wouldn't sue. But God worked. God remembered. God worked on your behalf. Or maybe right now you find yourself waiting. Wondering, did God forget me? Waiting for God to work on your behalf. And I think this story is a very helpful reminder to us that God is typically not fast at remembering us. He's not. And I think it's because he knows that if he did act on our behalf more quickly, we would very fast move over that event and forget that God remembered us. And so I think waiting is part of just God's deal to help us to slow down and to really see when he does work and to celebrate it and for it to do its have its intended effect on our souls, that we would know God is a God who remembers us. So that's the first thing. Second thing, God listens. God listens. I don't know if you've noticed in this chapter, and even the previous one, there's lots of references to God heard me, God listened to me, God heard me, God listened to me. We looked at one last week with Leah where we said that God heard her and saw her. Well, here she says God listens. She, she's learning firsthand that God is God who listens. Evidently, she had spent years pouring her heart out to God out of a desire to have a baby and perhaps for other things too. And God had Rachel wait 20 years so that she would know and experience him as the God who listens. See, God knew that if she had gotten pregnant on her honeymoon, she would not know him as the God who listens because she would have no reason to cry out to him to listen. So God sets it up this way. See, if Rachel did not find herself in a situation where she needed God to listen, then she would never know God as the God who listens. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> That's how God is. If she didn't have a reason to seek God, to pour her heart out to God, then she would never experience him as the God who listens to her. So opportunities like that are opportunities for us to pour our hearts out to God, to wait and to learn and to trust, even through her example, that God really does listen. He really does hear us. So don't stop acting, asking God to work. What situations do you find yourself in this morning that are causing you to pour your heart out to God? And do you see that as God working in your world so that you'll know him as the God who listens to you? Because that's what he's doing. I, I know that can sound very just trite. Just keep praying, keep praying. Eventually, God will answer somehow. But it is true. God wants us to encounter him, pursue him, pour our hearts out to him, waiting for him, knowing that he listens to us. So maybe instead of taking things into our own hands like Rachel and Leah and making a mess out of things, we're better off sometimes just praying and waiting, seeking and waiting, trusting that God's listening in his timing 
he will remember me and act on my behalf. The third thing here that we learn is that God opened her, her womb. That God had Rachel wait 20 years so she would experience God that way. And God knew that if she'd gotten pregnant on her honeymoon, she would have probably just thought, oh, that's just how it happens. <laughs> but God puts her on hold, not for one or five or ten years, but for 20 years. So when it does happen, she knows this is all God. And that was the point. And please notice that it was not enough for Rachel just to know others who had to wait. Because if you've been with us in Genesis, you know that she's very aware of others who waited 20 and 25 years. Right? I mean, we know that. Sarah waited 25 years. She's 90. She's postmenopausal, and she has Isaac. So that could have been enough. She doesn't need to learn the lesson firsthand, does she? Well, evidently, God wanted Rachel to know the work of God firsthand and not just through Sarah's story. And then there was Rebecca. She waited 20 years before she had Jacob and Esau. Rachel would have heard, I'm sure, from Rebecca many times about how she waited 20 years until she finally had the twins. Couldn't that have been enough? Isn't me hearing your story good enough? Well, not in this case. In this case, God wants Rachel to know firsthand and not secondhand through Rachel's story. Rebecca's story. See, if Rachel did not find herself in a situation where she needed God to open her womb, she would have known God as the God who works in her body and opened her womb. She would have known him that way. But God obviously wanted her to, so that she could add that to her story. Do you believe this morning that God is writing your story? Do you believe he's writing a story with your name on it? It may be or at least seem similar to you, to other people's stories. Maybe you don't see your story as very exciting. Or maybe you see your story as tragic. Or maybe you see your story as pointless. <laughs> Listen, God is at work in your world. And he is writing a story with your life and with your family and with all the mess that you walk through so that you'll know him the way he wants you to know him. So that we sang about this morning, so that he'll be magnified in our lives. So that we'll, we'll walk around the earth and say, here's how God works. Here's how God's working in my life. It's messy at times, but he's working in my heart and he's using the mess to change me and to show me who he is and how he works. Trust him this morning. Believe. Back to, the, back to two Sundays ago. There's no coincidences. God's at work. And he's doing the things in, his life that he, in your life that he's doing to accomplish his purposes so you will know him the way that he wants you to know him. All right, last thing God does in Rachel to show her himself is he takes away her reproach. He takes away her reproach. I think Rachel had experienced 20 years of reproach. Now that's... Not a word that we use, is it, very often, reproach. Not a word that I use very often. It's another word for shame. He took away her shame. He took away her disgrace. See, the reproach that she experienced was probably on multiple levels. She probably experienced the reproach and the shame from others who were wrongly accusing her of some sort of sin that was preventing her from having kids. So she lived with that shame for 20 years. That's a long time to live with other people judging you for something that's not even true. And then I bet she had some shame over giving her maid servant to Jacob for a couple of mandrakes. 
you don't think after time passed that didn't bug her a little bit? I mean, giving her maidservant, here, like something's not right in that whole story. And, and, and then there's the selling, well, there's the, the giving of that and then the selling of the mandrakes situation. So she's giving her maidservant away and selling men. I mean, all that stuff had to contribute to, to guilt and to shame. I think we can all identify. I think we can all look back on our lives and point to things where we feel guilt and shame and reproach for things we've done. Well, God, once again, had Rachel wait 20 years so she would feel the shame and the disgrace so she could know God is the God who takes away her, her shame. See, God knew that if she'd gotten pregnant on her honeymoon, she would not know God as the God who takes away shame. At least not this way. At least not to this degree. See, if Rachel did not find herself in a situation where she needed her shame removed, she would never know God as the God who takes away shame. Do you see what God's doing? He wants you to know you. He wants you to know him a certain way, so he puts you in a situation so you experience him that way. Because apart from the experience, you wouldn't know him firsthand to be the God that he claims to be, at least in that specific area. Now, this one, I think, is easier to apply because we can all identify with this and celebrate the reality that God has taken away our reproach and God has taken away our shame. I think Rachel is experiencing here really is a picture for us of the gospel, right? God comes to her. God blesses her. She doesn't need to be, she doesn't deserve getting blessed. I mean, think about the mess that led up to this moment. And yet God still gives her a baby. God still blesses her. And then God cleans her up. He cleanses her. He takes away her shame. He, he takes away her reproach in her life. I think this is one of the reasons God doesn't completely sanctify us the moment we're born again. I wish he did. Wouldn't that be nice? But sometimes I wonder if he doesn't because he wants us to continually experience him as the God who cleans us up, the God who cleanses us, the God who washes us clean, the God who takes away our shame. The God who takes away our sin. It's just a reminder of the gospel. Every time we sin and feel shame or do something or reflect on something we have done, it's a moment just to say, look what God did. We can know God afresh every day, multiple times every day, as the God who cleanses us, as the God who takes away my shame, as the God who, who takes away my reproach, because he's that good. And he loves to do it over and over and over again. And Jesus' death makes it all possible. He dies so he can... He can take away our disgrace, and then clothe us in all of his righteousness. I just feel like it's, it's a good opportunity for me to ask you and you to ask yourself, do you know God as the God who takes away your shame? Do you know him that way? I don't just mean like intellectual category, but does it function in your life like you know God as the God who takes away shame? Have, have you leaned into God that way? Have you taken your shame and your guilt the condemnation you feel, have you taken that to God and said, God, I want to I experience you as the God who takes it all away. I, I, I receive it from you because of the gospel. I, I give you my shame. You take my shame. You cleanse me. You make me righteous. God wants you to experience him that way. And sometimes the events, I think, in our lives are designed and set up so that we will go to him for that relief, for that encounter with him, where we can enjoy the freedom we have when we are cleansed from all of our sin. So I wonder this morning if in your past waiting or your current waiting, how does God want you to know him? Or what about in your family mess? I mean, in your current situation, how does God 
want you to know and experience him. See, we have Rachel. She sits here. We'd ask her, so in all the mess of your life, what did God show you about himself? And she would tell us, well, I know that God remembers me. I know that God listens to me. I know that God allowed me to get pregnant. I, I know that God takes away my reproach. So this morning in your situation, in your life, if I were to go around the room with a microphone and ask, in light of your current situation, family mess, trial, waiting, what is God showing you about himself? What does God want to reveal about himself to you? How does God want you to know him as a result of what you're going through? So he's only putting you through it so you'll know him a specific way. He's only, he's only allowing it to linger on for more days because he wants you to see something about him. And I think he's eager to show us. I think sometimes we just got to slow down and let him. So we're going to take a few minutes and do that. Just on your own, with your family or friends. I want you to think for a little bit about what it is you're struggling with. What are you going through? What are the trials? What are the temptations? What, what's the mess? What's, what's the heat in your life? The, the things that are just like, ah, oh, you're trying to figure out or deal with. Or maybe it's the conflicts you're having as a couple or parents and kids. What, what is it you think God is trying to show you about himself through that? What is he trying to reveal about himself to you? So uh, Bree's going to put up, the, there's three questions. I don't know if they're, or should we narrowed it down to two? Awesome. That was only two. Good. That's better than five. <laughs> like I had before. So in your waiting for God to remember you, how does he want you to know and experience him? Or maybe in your family mess, in your conflicts, how does God want you to know him? How is God working through that in your heart? So I just want you to consider those questions for a couple minutes. Pray. Alex is going to noodle around on the guitar. And then I'll, I'll pray when we're done. But I want to just feel like this is the gift of time. Maybe the best gift I can give you. <laughs> this is the gift of five minutes to sit with family, friends, God, and just consider what's God doing in your life, and then what is it that he wants you to know about him as a result. So let's just do that, and then I will close our time in prayer, and then we'll sing together.
my hope is that this week, whether it's as a family or in your group of three, um, community group setting, that you're able to finish the sentence. God is at work in my life showing me that he is and that you can fill that in. He's showing you what he's like in a very specific way and that we can encourage each other that way um, throughout the week. So let's stand. I want to pray and then we're going to sing a song together. Father, I know you're at work. I know you love to reveal yourself to us and not just intellectually but experientially. And I know that you are putting us through things. You're, you're giving us challenges and making us work through things in our own hearts that at times can seem very confusing. That at times we wish we could just get over with and move on. There's things about ourselves, about me, that I wish I could just fix or change and just be off with it. <laughs> but God, you, you do things in each one of our lives differently. And I just pray that each one of us would embrace what you're doing. Give us hope where there's hopelessness in what you're doing. Give us, give us the ability to trust that in your timing, you will show us things about yourself that we wouldn't have known otherwise. And God, may that be our bigger aim. I know it's very difficult to even want to pray, but may our very aim be we just want to know you more truly and we want to experience your presence in a powerful and real way more than we want ease, more than we want the mess to go away. We just want you. We want to know you. And so even though what we may be facing is confusing or painful, it might be a mess. May we look at it and say, God, please use this to show us who you are. So do that, I ask. And, and speak to us even now as we, continue, as we continue, as we sing together. Speak to us and encourage us and give us hope and faith that you love revealing yourself to us. So do that, I ask in Jesus' name.